Morning. Morning. Uh, lovely day outside. Hey, uh, before we get into the uh, message this morning, uh, I need to tell you something that has happened at our church. Uh, we actually need to go back to August, about six months ago. Uh, while we were kind of in the thick of all the sort of stressful things happening with our building planning, uh, we also discovered that our architects had had a miscommunication with the city of Blaine about the setbacks required for our future building and parking lot. So a setback, if you're not familiar with the terminology, is basically how far your parking lot needs to be set back from the road. So this is Lexington Avenue right here. This is our land. Uh, You know, obviously you can't put like a parking lot that goes and touches Lexington Avenue. That's actually dangerous for your small children, etc. right? So you need to be set back from the road a little bit. Well, What happened was we learned that our parking lots had to be set back a lot farther from the road than what was previously communicated to us. So in a sense, our piece of land went like this and happened on both sides. It just got skinnier. And so the usable land on our piece of land became smaller. Now, it isn't a problem um, for what we're building now in the present this year, but it will be a problem for when we want to expand someday in the future. In fact, in the future, it would put us around 80 parking spots short. It's not 10, not 20, 80 parking spots short of where we need to be when it comes time to expand in phase two someday. Uh, 80 parking spots translates into about 175 people. So that's 175 people that we wouldn't have a place for them to park. That's actually a pretty massive long-term problem for our church. And the city uh, was unable to accommodate what we needed. And so in a sense, we're just stuck. And then uh, an idea uh, came into our heads. And we thought this, we thought, Okay, you know, there is land for sale uh, just to the south of us, right here, about one and a half acres, in fact. So you can see it right here. Here's another piece of land that's for sale. And we thought, okay, but with today's fast-growing economy, it's going to cost somewhere between 300000 to maybe 450000 to actually purchase that land. And listen, we don't have $400,000 just laying around to add land into our, our, our church. But then we just thought this. We thought, okay, listen, our God can do anything, right? In Christ, all things are possible. So here's what I had our key leaders do. I had our key leaders just begin to pray, right? Because this is a major heartbeat of our church. We just believe in prayer that God can move. So we prayed and we prayed and we prayed, and then what I did was I called up the guy who owns this piece of land, just the one and a half acres directly to the south of us. And here's what I said. I said, listen, I think this particular piece of land is going to be difficult for you to sell because half of it, I don't know how well you can see it from where you're sitting, half of it is the pond. This pond splits, our property line splits right through this pond. And the other half of it is actually a pretty narrow strip. So I called them, I explained that, and I said, listen, I'm wondering if you would just consider donating that land to our church for free. And he paused for a second, and he said, would your church pay for the appraisal? You want to see how much it's worth? It's about $1,500 to pay for that. I said, absolutely. He said, yeah, why don't you pay for the appraisal, and uh, we'll see. I'll think about it. I, I, maybe I will. So we pay 1500 bucks. We get the land appraised. We got to wait four weeks. Four weeks later, the appraisal comes back and they say that this little piece of land, welcome to suburban Minnesota, is worth $305,000. 
So we inform the owner. We say it's worth $305,000. And he says, unfortunately, that's not the price I was looking for. I would want it to be at least $385,000. Which, it's his choice, right? He's the one who's even considering (laughs) doing this extremely uh, generous move. So I call our bank back. I let them know, hey, we didn't quite get what we were looking for. You know, what's your advice? What do you think we should do? Uh, and they kind of said, I think at this point, you just, you, you gave it the old college try. You know, you just, it didn't work. Uh, they said, you could get another appraisal. Obviously, you can keep getting appraised, but you can just keep chasing appraisals until you're blue in the face. And I just said to them, listen, I don't have $385,000 just sitting around somewhere. And this is really our only option. Like, if we want to expand someday, if we want to have enough parking, this land is owned. They're going to build a little strip mall thing right here with a restaurant, like a coffee shop. This is, this is it. That's all, that's all we have. And I, I've just always been in the philosophy that we have to give God an opportunity to move. Like you can't walk on water unless you get out of the boat. And so, Here's what I did. I called the owner back and I said, this guy's, you know, been in real estate and that sort of thing for a long time. And I said, do you have an appraiser that you like? He said, you bet. So we paid another $1,500 to get it appraised again. You know, part of the problem with the first appraisal is they didn't value hardly any of the land really close to the pond. They said, well, that's not really that valuable. Well, they get it appraised again. This time the appraiser says, no, 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 this piece of land is actually worth $435,000. Same piece of land. And so the landowner then reaches out to me and he says, listen, I'm going to give that land to your church for free. It's yours. So look at this. We now own eight acres of land. And what we're going to do in the future, not not in phase one when we build, but in the future, you know, maybe three years from now or five years from now, wherever it happens, these ponds right here is we'll move them to the south so that they're along this property line right here. And that allows us basically to take our parking lot right here and expand it over to the south so we can have all of the parking spots we need so many, many people can come and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. This is incredible. (laughs) I want to tell you something. Over this journey of the last five and a half years, uh, If you've been to this church for a long time, you have heard me stand on this stage and tell you many, many times that I feel like I didn't have the personal faith that God was going to do it. And yet God just always kept coming through. I feel like this particular story was the, it's just different. I feel like this particular story was the result of the increased faith of our leaders. See, I feel like three years ago, we never make that phone call to ask somebody to just give us their land. But we have just seen in this church God move over and over and over and over again that I just felt like, yeah, okay, it's really ridiculous to call someone and say, will you give me your land? But then I just think about our God, and I think, how hard is it for God to put an idea in one person's head saying, yeah, I'll do that? I don't think that's very hard. The Bible says you do not have because you do not ask. And so we asked. And God moved. And so I'm, I'm able to share all this. This has been happening over the last six months. I'm able to share it all with you at this point. It's all the details have been worked out. We've actually even closed on the land. And it is officially ours. So isn't, uh, God is good. Amen. So pretty cool. All right. 
Uh, we are, uh, as a church, jumping back into the book of Luke this morning, uh, which is one of four books in the Bible about the teachings, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'd love for you to follow along as we study God's word this morning. There's a Bible under every chair. Uh, we're going to be on page 847, uh, or you can use the Renovation Church app and just have Bible and weekly verses. Uh, at, at Renovation Church, if you're new around here, we spend about half of our year, maybe 26 weeks, give or take or so, going verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And we are right now in the middle of a three-year journey through the book of Luke. If you study the middle section of the book of Luke, there are a number of just really challenging teachings from Jesus. And today is no exception. So here we go. Uh, Luke chapter 13, we are now at verse 1. It says, now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Okay, let's stop there for a little bit. Now, if you look at verse 1, I think the wording in verse 1 is actually a bit cumbersome. Unless it's a bit confusing in this particular translation. It actually makes a lot more sense if you read any other translation. Basically, here's what happened. Pontius Pilate, he's the uh, Roman governor at the time, had, he was a brutal man, he had Galileans killed while they were worshiping God in the temple. And not only that, he took the blood from them as they were killed and mixed it with the temple sacrifices. So it's an awful thing that has happened. Now, the people who approach Jesus and question him, they don't overtly say it, but Jesus hears what they're really thinking in their question. And this happens a number of times, this sort of thinking you've seen in John 9 as well in the Bible. They're thinking this. They're thinking, okay, Jesus, these people, they died in such a horrible way, so surely they must have done something horrible to deserve that kind of death. Okay, that's how a lot of people thought in the time of Jesus. Now, part of that thinking seems actually pretty foreign to us as modern people. We think, oh, that sounds kind of intense to say it that way. But there are other parts of it that I think are actually quite similar to how we think as modern-day Americans. In fact, I want to show you there are uh, two common ways that Americans, just the average American, uh, philosophically approach God when it comes to a suffering. And I want you to see that Jesus doesn't subscribe to either of these two most popular ways that we have in America. Here's the first. I'll call it just the first incorrect philosophy. I think many people in America, they wouldn't say it like this, but they essentially believe this. Good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. This is incredibly popular in our culture right now. Right? We look at people who are living a good life, and they're really kind to others, and they work hard, and their life's going generally well. And so we make a connection, and we say, well, your life is generally going well because you're a good person, and see, good is coming to you. And that person in life that's having all sorts of troubles, we say, well, that's because their whole life they've just been incredibly selfish and incredibly mean, so you can kind of see. Now, in many places around the world, particularly in South Asia and in East Asia, uh, this is not a philosophy. It's actually a theology, and we call it karma, right? Karma is uh, what goes around, comes around. It's the idea that if you keep 
hurting other people, then karma will come back to you and pay you back for what you've done. This is not a Christian theology, but it's a theology in many other religions. I find that people in America talk about karma all the time without really a deep understanding of what karma actually is. But less often do you hear karma used as a reason for death, right? Like that's not very PC in our culture. In fact, I don't know if you saw it on the news of this week. There was a principal, I think it was out in California, that just got put on leave because she connected karma to a famous person's death. But that is almost exactly what the crowd is asking Jesus. They're saying, hey, Jesus, since these people died in such an awful death, like a tower fell on them, surely it's because they were bad people who did awful things, right? Jesus isn't having it. I think that many people in America today, we believe in things like karma because that's a simple way to look at it. It's just a black and white, easy way to look at life. But surely karma is not logical, right? Like think about September 11th, uh, when the planes hit the two towers and 2,606 people died in the World Trade Center. Were they the 2,606 people that were the bad people and the rest of the people that got out were the good people? When you actually carry karma out to its logical uh, ending or illogical ending, you'll see that there's no logic in it. And Jesus isn't having any of this kind of thinking. He says to them, no, no. All right, there's a second incorrect philosophy, and this one maybe is just as possible or popular, and it's this. People look at the world and they say, no, actually bad things are happening to good people, so therefore God can't be real. Or at least he's not worth following. Now, I would say at first glance, this kind of looks like the opposite of the first incorrect philosophy. But it's actually not. It's actually just the first philosophy with an angry mask on. See, one of the main reasons that so many people in this country become agnostic is because something bad has happened to them. Or maybe to a family member. And so they say, because of that, that I can't believe in God anymore. Well, what's underneath that? Why is that? What's underneath philosophy number two? Well, what's underneath philosophy number two is actually just philosophy number one. See, they believe that bad things are not supposed to happen to good people, like themselves or their family member. But because something bad has indeed happened... They feel like they cannot believe anymore that God exists. There is no good God. And so I cannot follow him. Well, why do they believe that? Well, what they're actually saying is this. They're saying that the primary litmus test that they use for determining whether or not God is real is, does this God hold to my standard of doing good things for good people and bad things to bad people? And if he doesn't hold to my standard then he is not real. To which I say, okay, well, <laughs> wait a minute. Hold, hold up a second. Where did you get that standard from? And how is it that your standard is superior somehow to how the actual God chooses to operate? And can you even prove that God owes you a good life? Because that's what you're saying. God gives good things to good people. He owes you. And can you even prove that people are good? 
Now watch this. Jesus is going to completely blow up the framework around the question that asked, don't good people deserve good things and bad people deserve bad things? He's just going to blow that question to smithereens. His answer is so completely counterintuitive to the way our world thinks that this actually might be a bit hard for you to hear, particularly if you haven't spent your whole life in church. So look at this again. Look closely. Verses 2 and 3. Same passage. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? Are they bad people? Worse than all of you? All the other Galileans because they suffer this way. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Uh, Some of the translations I really like to say, you too likewise will perish. See, according to Jesus, the real question is not, why did the others die? The real question is, why am I still alive? He's saying, don't tell yourself that these people who are suffering are just bad people because you're just as bad. And unless you do something about it, justice will fall on you as well, likewise. I told you this is going to be a bit hard to hear. The Bible, if you study the word of God, clearly teaches that we are all born sinners. We are born innately sinful. It's in our nature. We are unable to do good on our own. Of Romans 3.10, Paul says it this way. He says, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. You could translate that to say, there is no good, good person, not even one. And so therefore, tragedies and disasters should not shock us as if they are coming upon good people. There are no good people. And because sin is in the world and evil is everywhere, we see tragedy, we see disaster. And we also have to remind us ourselves that God doesn't owe us anything. See, I think many, many Americans today believe in, and and many Christians even, believe in what I would call the good person fallacy. Uh, A a fallacy, uh, if you don't know that word, is, is a mistaken belief based upon unsound arguments or principles. And the idea that there are good people is a fallacy. You will find that idea absolutely nowhere in the Bible. And I would even press you that you won't even find it in reality if you take a hard look at your own heart and at the people around you. We are all sinners. God owes us nothing for being good. We are not good people. But if you keep operating under the good person fallacy, I just want to tell you right now, you will be extremely frustrated with God. It'll be hard for you to finish out your life believing in God. You'll be extremely frustrated with life. Jesus is saying, when tragedy strikes, it should cause us to actually say, If God had given me what I truly deserve, that should have been me. It could have been me. And unless we repent, 
that as we turn from our sin, we surrender our lives to God, something far worse from an eternal judgment will befall us. That's what he's saying. These are hard words for our culture. We don't talk like this anymore, but that is the teaching of the word of God. Let's keep going through. Maybe this will give us some more insight. So verse 6 now in Luke 13 says, Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone. This is sort of the the gardener, if you will. Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and, and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Uh, This passage is actually quite connected to what we just read. Jesus is saying that one day, judgment will come to all of us. We will die. 100% of us in this room. We will die, and we will meet our maker, and our maker will see if there is any fruit on our tree. Here's where the two passages kind of come together. There are no good people that can earn their way to God by being good, by somehow producing their own fruit. Uh, Whenever you see fruit uh, in the New Testament, it it always means like good deeds. But there are people who have the evidence of God working in their life, and that's the sort of fruit that the Bible talks about when it talks about fruit. So everybody in this room, we got to make sure that we're asking the right question. Right? Here's the wrong question. It would be wrong, it would be the wrong question to say to God, have I done enough good so that God will reward me for being a good person? That's the wrong question. Because there is no good person. God owes us nothing. If you could get to heaven just by doing enough good deeds, then I assure you that God would have never let his own son Jesus be murdered on the cross. If there was another way for you to get there. And so we have to ask the right question. And the right question is, have I repented of my sin? Repent means to turn. And have I trusted that Jesus Christ died in my place? And is there fruit from that? Is there evidence? Can people look at your life and see that Jesus Christ is actually in your life? That's the fruit the Bible talks about. Now, to some of you in this room, this teaching from Jesus actually sounds like bad news. Like, the idea that the, that there are good people out there, letting go of that, or believing that that's actually just a fallacy, that actually sounds rather dark to you. Like, oh, there are no good people. I have some neighbors, you're thinking. Oh, my grandparents, I could, there's such just some good people. And they don't even follow Jesus, you're saying. They're good people. I assure you, This is actually good news. It's not bad news. Jesus' message is good news. The the only reason that that some of you are hearing it as bad news is because you've been overly conditioned by the culture to think of yourself as your savior. To think of yourself as someone who is a good person because you're not fill-in-the-blank, right? You're not a murderer. You're not a trafficker. You're not a terrorist. And so therefore you are good. But here's the problem for you spiritually. The more you think of yourself as a good person, the less you will think that you need Jesus. I think this news is actually way better than you think it is. We are unbelievably sinful through and through. We sin, I don't know, a hundred times a day. 
God will never look at any of us and say, oh, there's a good person who does good works without me. No, he sees all of your sin, but still loves you anyway. He's seen all of your sin and still sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. Now think about this. That What that means is he doesn't love you because you've been a good person. He just loves you. That's better news, right? Okay, think about this. If you have to be a good person to earn God's love, to earn God's salvation, to go to heaven, some of you in this room know that if that's how it works, then you are up a crick without a paddle, right? Because your life has just kind of been a mess. There's no way by the end of your life that your good deeds are now going to somehow catch up and surpass your bad deeds. That's not good news, that God accepts the good people. And for the rest of you, right, if you think, oh, I've been moderately good, well, what will happen if you operate under that fallacy is you're going to have to spend the rest of your life lying to yourself, saying, no, 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 those people are bad, I'm good, and then you're going to, your sin will come to your mind, you'll go, no, see, it's not actually really that bad, and you'll push it and suppress it, and it will drive you insane. No, the answer is what Jesus said it was, and it's to repent, to admit that you're not good on your own. You cannot save yourself. You bow your knee, you turn your life over to him because he loves you even though you're not good. That's real love. And if that's true, and you're realizing it, you must surrender your life to Jesus Christ who loves you more than anyone else ever will. Uh, some of you, for the first time, some of you, just to come back to them, there's some of you in this room where you've been following Jesus for quite some time, but maybe the last six months or the last year or two of your life, you've just been drifting from him. And you too need to repent. Not for the first time, maybe to be saved, but to repent, to turn back to him. You know, repentance is a word, it doesn't come out of our culture, right? It comes out from a long, long time ago, from a different world where there were no street signs, Right? There was no maps, no GPS on your smartphone, and it was easy to get lost. Now remember, the word means to turn, to turn around. Because at some point, if you were living in the ancient world and you were trying to find someone, this is kind of where the word comes from, you're trying to find a place, you would get lost. But in those days, unlike the days of a smartphone, you would get really lost. And if you remember, those of you that are a bit older, if you remember those days before we all had maps on our phones... You get to this point where you're like, I think I'm lost, but I don't want to admit that I'm lost. You know what I'm saying? Men in the room, right? And it's hard. It's hard to get to the point to say, no, I am lost. I'm lost, and I need to turn around. This is the wrong way. That point in life is really difficult. And it is really difficult to do that sort of repentance. Like, I cannot continue to do this on my own. I need Jesus. I cannot continue to think that I'm going to be okay someday because I'm a good person. That sort of repenting, the turning, I'm, I have been going the wrong direction. I need to go a new direction. That is really hard. And it's hard even for some of you that have been believers for a while and you've been drifting. It's hard to turn back. But it is so necessary. There are no good people. And you know, the other point that Jesus makes in this passage is that none of us have forever. Look at verse 7 again. So, so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming. For some of you, this is Jesus coming to your life. 
I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? At some point, our tree will be cut down. Our life will be over. And for some of you, it will come rather unexpectedly. I mean, I felt like the death of Kobe Bryant was an important reminder to all of us that nothing is guaranteed. Well, all not guaranteed to just live out our life to life expectancy. And for many of us, death will come unexpectedly, not because it shocks us at 35 or 40, but it comes unexpectedly because time just goes so fast. Think of it this way. If you are a, a young parent uh, in the room, and I know many, many of you are, particularly at this service, you know that perhaps the most annoying thing in the world is when an older person comes up to you and they look at you and you're out with your young kids and they say, what do they say? They say, cherish every moment. They are going to be 18 in a blink of an eye and they'll be gone. But whenever I hear that, I just think, oh, you know what? Also in the blink of an eye, you're going to be standing in front of the judgment seat of God. But that feels like an overreaction, and so I don't... (laughs) I don't actually think that. Okay. But the point is true, right? Life goes so fast. When they say that to you as a young parent, it's, you know, it's an odd thing to say, right? But it's out of truth. It'll go so fast. And life will continue to go that fast. And then it's over. And my friend, God wants nothing more than for you to turn your life over to him now so he can save you and start growing supernatural fruit in your life. Uh, Verse 8, I feel like is really the heart of Jesus Christ for you. Look at it again. Sir, the man replied. Now think of your life as as the tree. That's the point of the parable. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. One more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If if not, then cut it down. God has been showing you mercy after mercy after mercy. He has been giving you chance after chance after chance. He has you here today and he's speaking his love into your life saying, I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I still love you. The New Testament says it this way. Second Peter 3, 9. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. It said, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Listen, God could have rightfully taken every single one of us in this room from this earth already. He owes us nothing. Nothing. There's not a person in this room, when you die and you sit in front of the judgment seat of God, and he reads through the exhaustive list of all of your sins, there is not a person in this room that's going to look back at Almighty God and say, oh, now can you see how I'm a good person? It's not going to happen. He could have taken us already, and he would have been just to do so. But he hasn't, because he loves you. But who knows how many years he will keep giving you at some point the master comes back and the tree is cut down and when that day comes if you are still banking on the fact that you are a good person and not banking on the fact of Jesus' death for you then you will perish and so I just beg you 
surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe again, maybe for the first time. Because you don't know when your time is over. If you never believed before that Jesus is your Savior, do it today. I want to encourage you, before you fall asleep tonight, if this is what the Lord has just been doing in your heart, before your head hits the pillow, just kneel down by the side of your bed and just say, God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me and pay for my sins and that you love me and I invite you into my life. And he will come in and he will radically change your life. Amen.